Episode 3 Daniel at the Wheel The most significant figure in the history of Irish boards never kicked a ball at any kind of serious level. He wasn't an Olympian. He never had any aspirations to become one. He had an interest in horse racing, but only as a punter, and he has no athletic attributes that anyone knows about. But Daniel Kinahan, the 44-year-old former furniture shop owner from Dublin, carried more clout than any other Irish person on the global sporting stage. How many truly global sports are there? Soccer's the obvious one. Rugby? Not at all. He's only played at a serious level in fewer than 15 countries. Basketball and athletics are on the list, and boxing is right up there too. Anywhere you go, you will find boxing clubs. From major cities like London, New York, Sydney, to small villages in remote parts of Africa and Asia. One recent conversation with one of the most prominent figures in boxing contained a startling line. I was told that Kinahan is far more influential than many realise, that he pulls the strings at all levels all around the world. With most sports, it would be impossible for a figure like Kinahan to become so prominent. But boxing operates with light-touch regulation, or no regulation at all, some would argue. Kinahan manages fighters, but because he describes himself as an advisor rather than a manager, the authorities say they can't do anything about his presence in boxing. The administration of boxing at international level is a mess, and Kinahan has exploited that fact. Here's Ger Gilroy. It's 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 not regulated really. Like uh, I mean, you know, we're what two hundred years of, of this sport being removed from street fighting for money in taverns, like. Um, and the origins of the sport are something that they can shake off with glamour and glitz, but they're they're right there. Like, um, and the difficulty is, if you make boxing illegal, the fights will still continue, and they'll just be completely unregulated. There there won't be any requirement to have a neurosurgeon or an ambulance on standby or any of that kind of stuff. That uh, at least is the progress they've made. Like the sport is the sport is a dirty sport. The the whole notion of the, the sport is you're trying to concuss your opponents. That's the, the the aim of the game is to try and concuss your opponent. And nobody's going to stand up and say, well, I'm going to be the person who has full responsibility for this. And only the, only these people who meet these criteria are going to be allowed into the sport. Like, <laughs> it's Chinatown. You can't hold it to the same standards as other things because it doesn't really exist. It doesn't really exist as a sport like that. It doesn't, it, it's not a grassroots thing where you come through. I mean, like, obviously, amateur boxing is is kind of what boxing would look like if it was regulated. And it is an absolute shit show. There was somebody involved at the very senior levels there who was on the most wanted list of the FBI for heroin smuggling. Like, uh, again, a country tried to buy the sports and uh, ended up buying loads of medals. And, that, and that's supposed to be regulated. That's supposed to be the good, clean version of this. So you see the attraction to uh, criminals for all sorts of reasons. You see the attraction of the money that the criminals can bring to the governing bodies everybody gets their taste and everybody moves on it's unfortunately the story of like it is the story of the mafia where unless you're at the very bottom of the pole you're getting a little bit and you got to kick up and for some reason society seems to have made the combination that actually mostly they're happy with that something that was striking about the kinan situation is the lack of comment from the governing bodies in ireland 
the Irish Athletic Boxing Association in Amateur Boxing and the Boxing Union of Ireland in Professional Boxing. You can argue that Kinahan has nothing to do with amateur boxing, but the reality is that there are people who have very close links to both the amateur scene here and MTK Global. It's not as if MTK have no interest in amateur boxing either. MTK have put a lot of work into making inroads in the amateur game, which would then put them in a great position to hoover up the best young fighters for a move into the paid ranks. MTK sponsors the Lonsdale Box Cup, for example, bringing together many of the best amateurs in the UK and further afield. Attempts were also made by MTK to sponsor amateur competitions in Ireland. It was very noticeable too that prominent MTK figures were sending messages on social media to Irish boxers during the Olympics. This all feeds into Finn Gale TD Neil Richmond's view that there's a lack of proper regulation in the boxing industry. It's very separate in terms of well, what's the state's involvement, what's the government's involvement, because you know the state has direct involvement with the Irish Amateur Boxing Association, but not the professional boxing, because there's no Sports Ireland funding um, in terms of any professional boxing that goes in here. You know they have to apply to a license, maybe to a county council, to a venue. Um, so it's quite limited what the direct state involvement is now. If MTK start were to try and set up an MTK amateurs or try to start sponsoring amateur events under the auspices of the IABA, that's where the state has a very real role and huge concern through Sport Ireland and through various grants and funding. Um, but within professional boxing, it is extremely unregulated. You know, it's done in many fiefdoms. Look, we've seen this through history. You know, it's why, you know, it's it's whatever... Um, US boxing not giving Muhammad Ali a license is why probably the Rumble of the Jungle and the Thriller in Manila and all these other things happen. Very different reasons. Um, and, you know, we, we saw through COVID that you could get exemption for boxing in certain countries um, and people move around the world to avoid the pressure. Um, usually that's to do with the people who are taking part, not necessarily their promoters or their rumoured promoters. So that's why it becomes quite a diplomatic thing, why it becomes quite a, for want of a better word, public relations effort. And it goes back to the, the corporate enforcement that any advertiser or broadcaster or partner um, signs up to parallel to this. According to the now defunct website, the now defunct MTK had branches in 15 different countries, in 25 different cities. There were over 200 boxers on the roster of MTK. Among that number were ex-Olympians, world champions and very talented prospects. MTK paid better than many other companies, even to boxers of a mediocre standard. Dave Hannigan can see why so many fighters ended up with the company, but feels their involvement might end up damaging them. Frankie Cabo ran, ran boxing from a cafe, the table in a cafe in the middle of New York City. And he had no title and, you know, no official title, yet he controlled it. And we can see Daniel Kinahan as quote-unquote advisor is, is pulling the strings in boxing from wherever the hell he's holed up in, in Dubai or wherever he is. But I, I worry about the fighters who, who are sucked into the MTK world by the immediate money that you can earn that will be better for you, you know, today. But I think ultimately you're seriously, they're seriously damaging their legacy and they're, they're damaging their future potential. I want to say there's an asterisk next to their name after you get into bed with these people. Patrick Connor, 
a boxing and true crime writer, points to a pattern that's all too familiar when it comes to major stories in sport. Shoot the messenger. Boxing fans tend to turn on those in the media who highlight who and what Kinahan is. I think that as long as the fights are made, they don't care. I think that uh, the, the best way to describe it would be don't get in the way of their fun. That's pretty much what it comes down to. Don't spoil it for them. That's their attitude for the most part. Although I think that you could apply that to people in general, but in boxing in particular, it's very insular. It's very um, insider. Anybody who comes in and is new as a noob or is, you know, uh, the, I don't know, casual or something. There's all sorts of names uh, that these people have. And again, that's not unique to boxing itself or boxing circles, but it's definitely a very insular kind of group. So, yeah, you know, I, I can see that a lot of fans get turned off or at least act turned off. And you experience this. I know you do. Um, there's a backlash and it's like almost you don't know how much of it is uh, people are upset about the news or people upset that you're just breaking news at all and ruining their fun, <laughs> whatever the news is. So it's it's kind of it's kind of a challenge in that regard, yeah. If nothing else, this story let us know that the Streisand effect is still a thing. It's named after Barbara Streisand, who sued a photographer, Kenneth Edelman, for violation of privacy. He'd photographed her mansion from the air as part of a collection of 12,000 California coastline pics in a project designed to document coastal erosion. Before Streisand's legal action, the picture of her house had been viewed on Edelman's website just six times. After she took action, 420,000 people had a look. Since then, the Streisand effect has been used to describe anything where an attempt to hide or censor information has the unintended consequence of publicizing the information more widely. To Neil Richmond, Tyson Fury's praise of Kinahan on Instagram made him sit up and take notice of the story. That happened with many others too. Is that really an example of the Streisand effect? Well, it's kind of a quirky twist on it. What really got stuck in my throat was the announcement um, when Tyson Fury name-checked Daniel Kinnan three times on that infamous Instagram post. And I just, I've been looking forward to this fight, um, but I was well aware of who exactly Daniel Kinahan was. And I remember being at one of the last kind of big name professional fights in the in the three arena in Dublin and kind of thinking like we haven't had a big fight in Dublin here largely since the Regency and we probably won't for a long time yet and here we have a guy who I know is a crook much worse than a crook is on the run and is being name checked and touted by the most famous boxer arguably in the world and he's Irish and it's wrong so I just said this this can't be allowed that we just blase sit back and allow this renowned international gangster who had just been named in the Irish courts to take all this credit. And I think it was in the Daily Telegraph. They literally just referred to him as having a colourful background. And that set off a chain of events where I put out a social media post. I then got a great reaction. So I changed that into a press statement and I raised it in the doll, as did a couple of others, and 
we went from the Daily Telegraph calling him colourful in the space of a couple of days, actually laying out who we really know Daniel Kinahan to be. Neil Richmond decided to take a proactive approach. It's all well and good to give interviews or condemn Kinahan in a speech in the Dáil, but Richmond also focused on those who wield power and influence in boxing, and he got in touch with them too. There was a couple of things. So, obviously, I wrote to all the broadcasters, um, primarily BT and Sky, brought them to their attention, to their Dublin offices now, not their, their global offices. I engaged a very wide media network that I'd built up due to my work on Brexit. Um, but yes, I engaged with the Saudi ambassador to Ireland and the UAE ambassador to Ireland, equally wrote to the Minister of Foreign Affairs to get this brought up. Uh, now, what Saudi, because the fight was due to be in, in Jeddah, I think it was. Um, and then the so the Irish embassy in Riyadh and the Irish embassy in Abu Dhabi. So the Irish embassy in Abu Dhabi, not just look, it doesn't just look after the UAE, but it also looks after Bahrain. And they, in turn, I subsequently found out um, through freedom of information put in by journalists that letters I had written had been received by the ambassadors and then presented as a dossier to local officials uh, in all three countries. That's the sort of stuff that you keep doing on. I will add, I've never received a reply to my letters from either the Saudi or UAE ambassador. I have the, the Saudi ambassador had ignored that letter and wrote to me asking me to engage or meet about something completely different. And I was uh, more than happy to meet once you reply to my letter of whatever date in July 2020 that it was. And that's the sort of the, the continuing pressure and highlighting in the doll. I've engaged with the TV companies quite a number of times, referred to them not just in relation to what we all know, but every time Daniel Kinahan's mentioned um, in the context of any other fight or a new boxing signing. There's also a UN charter that both Sky and BT are signed up that they will have nothing to do with uh, individuals who are tied to corruption or people smuggling. Um, and that would obviously would relate directly to Daniel Kinnan given the verdicts of the Irish courts or the, or the accepted statement that if they do explicitly engage with him, they're in, bre in breach of the UN charter that both companies have engaged on. Both Sky and BT have responded each time I've written to them and they said we don't deal directly with Daniel Cunahan. We believe he has no connections to MTK. We uh, are well aware of the points that you have made. Again, these are their Irish offices, so you know, it would be, you'd have to be living under a stone not to be aware of the points I made. Um, we bear that in mind. We take this very seriously. Um, we only engage with reputable um, partners and all those sort of things. Over 200 countries compete internationally in amateur boxing. At last year's World Championships, medals went to boxers from Cuba, Kazakhstan, the USA, Ireland, Armenia, Australia, Japan, Italy and the Philippines, among others. Try and find another sport with such a global spread of top performers and you'll struggle. At professional level, it's a similar story. There are current world champions from Ukraine, Belgium, France, Mexico, Puerto Rico, Nicaragua and Thailand. This is a huge sport with local heroes everywhere. The fact that Daniel Kinahan was seen by many as boxing's Mr. Big should give us pause. Is that really the case? Is he really that powerful? Well, these are just some of the things that have been said about Kinahan in the last few months. The reality is that 80% of the big fights happen because of Daniel Kinahan. He's the most powerful man in the sport of boxing now. Nothing happens without Daniel Kinahan having a say. 
so many within the sport have praised him publicly. Others are quick to defend boxers who join up with him, arguing that they have little choice in the most brutal of sports. Michael O'Toole, Crown Journalist of the Year, doesn't agree. I think everybody has a role to play in this. You know, the micro and the macro, the big and the small. Kenan clearly feels secure because, you know, people like Bobby are unmentioned and, you know, Tyson Fury thanks him and we had this weird number of people on Twitter, for example, all thanking him and that sort of stuff and be Billy Joe Saunders and stuff. But everybody has their own morals. Everybody has to look at themselves in the mirror. And you can't just say, right, look, this is the system. It's terrible. But I, I fully understand the need to make a living. I have no problem with that. But Kenan is not the only person involved in boxing. There are other groups out there who have no, no, no involvement in crime whatsoever. So, you know, I, I really respectfully, I don't think that holds. I think, you know, it's like sort of, you know, well, it's the sort of that attitude of, well, everybody's doing it, so why can't I? Well, you know, if everybody's doing it because nobody goes, I'm not going to do this anymore. So if one person does it, you know, there are plenty of boxers who aren't involved with Kenan. So, you know, I don't think, I, I wouldn't agree with that at all. This is a time when sports watching has become fashionable and where it's equally fashionable to call out sports washing. LiveScore even saw fit to stop carrying Russian football results due to that country's assault on Ukraine. There's an argument that boxing invented sports washing, and it could all go back to Frankie Carbo, one of the most significant figures in the rise of the pro game. He was described by Bud Schulberg, the writer of Oscar winner On the Waterfront, as the mob's unofficial commissioner for boxing. But Carbo was eventually sentenced to 25 years in prison. And it was his involvement in boxing corruption that brought him to justice. Many within boxing speak highly of Daniel Kinahan because in a sport where boxers are often treated badly, there is evidence that he looked after them well. So there are fighters, trainers, managers and media people in the boxing game who praise Kinahan, or at least they used to do. Really, they were doing their bit to sportswash Kinahan's reputation. Off the Ball is the most prominent and successful sports programme on Irish radio. In October of last year, the presenters Owen Sheehan and Ger Gilroy had a difference of opinion following the dramatic third Tyson Fury-Deontay Wilder fight, with Sheehan arguing that the Kinahan connection prevented him from fully engaging. Gilroy, though, thought it showed how sportswashing works. Here's Jared Gilroy. So our conversation that we had uh, was in the immediate aftermath of the, the last of the trilogy, right? And Owen was making the point that the whole thing is ruined for him and that, and that in Ireland, he thinks boxing fans are less interested in this than they would be in other circumstances. And I just don't buy that people in the middle of the actual event itself remember that they're supposed to be appalled. I, to be honest, my main argument is sports washing in all its forms works from the smallest local politician rocking up to the local football club and having his picture taken with whatever dignitary all the way up to states buying football clubs or states hosting massive events like the Olympics that sports washing fundamentally works because we we love the sport and we love the drama and we're hooked on it and in the middle of it people don't remember what's actually going on or how, how anybody's got there. So like people, you, you can see from the numbers that watch the videos anytime 
we put up a video about um, MTK's origins and Daniel Kinahan's involvement with Tyson Fury or with the making of the biggest fight in the world that we, we do really big numbers on them. So people care about those stories. But I think that there's a massive disconnect between the actual sports event itself on the night and what goes on behind it. No one wants to know how the sausage gets made. I think that's it. And I think that's fundamentally why people get involved in sports washing at whatever level. There is a case to be made for there being a purity to amateur boxing, even allowing for the judging scandals at major competitions over the years. At amateur level, the focus is on skill and movement and ring craft rather than power. Pro boxing is a dangerous game and no cowards step through the ropes. The dangers are so great that the risks are largely taken for one reason only, money. That pursuit of money has led to all sorts of rules being broken or bent over the years. Most boxing people, including fans, take it in their stride. They may love their sport but are cynical about it because it's the most cynical of sports. Here's Patrick Connor. As an institution, as a social institution, it's extremely resistant to change. And despite the fact that it has been demonstrated to be, uh, by and large, kind of doing the wrong thing in a number of different areas. And so it, it, it takes a long time for good things to happen or for good change to happen in boxing. And yeah, I would say that it is a very cynical sport for sure, because it's it's a sport where the vast majority of the people either involved or who are fans fully recognize the, that the situation is similar to like a battered wife situation, they say, uh, where you keep getting punishment and keep coming back for it. Because boxing is awesome a lot of the time, but also so often absolutely terrible in terms of the outcomes for the fighters and in terms of the disregard for fans and what the fans would like to see and stuff like that and the way that it's kind of developed as a business. So yes, it, it's extremely cynical in that regard. Connor does have sympathy for the sports media as the coverage of boxing has changed so much. It makes it harder to cover stories like that of Kenahan in boxing. For those who are still inside the tent, the way the sport operates makes it difficult to ask hard questions. In decades past, covering boxing was a full-time job for a lot of people. And at just about any large newspaper, you would have someone who was a sports journalist or sports writer whose job it was to primarily cover boxing, or if not primarily cover boxing, largely cover boxing or that boxing was a large part of their repertoire. As decades have gone past, media has changed. The dissemination of media has changed. The way people consume media has changed. Um, you know, there's a, that's its entire new podcast episode there. But the way that things have developed has been that there are very, very few jobs in boxing media. Most of the jobs in boxing media have to do with uh, working in the PR field or working uh, in the management field or in, in some way that's tied to the promoters. And that is not a way that is, um, it's not a method of truth telling to fans or other people, to the, to the public. 
and most of those jobs have disappeared. So in order to keep those jobs, in order to have those jobs, and you can look at any of the larger uh, boxing writers, the more mainstream boxing writers around the world, you, I mean, just you can go search that wherever on Google, and you can see that their jobs require a lot of access to the fighters and their teams, meaning they're constantly in contact. And I give them credit. They work hard. They're making a lot of calls, wheeling and dealing. I get it. But it requires constant contact and texting and stuff like that with this team and this manager and this promoter to figure out what the news of the day is, what the news of the week is. And without that access, those things don't happen. And if you write bad things about a promoter, about an advisor, about a manager, you will lose that access. That's the way that boxing media works. And so people are reluctant to write about someone like, for instance, Daniel Kinahan. Jer Gilroy is managing director of Off the Ball, which broadcasts around 40 hours of sports coverage a week in Ireland. Gilroy feels that covering the Kinahan story presents certain difficulties. It was a story that was static in some ways for a long time. Kinahan was at the heart of boxing, but he was at the heart of boxing for a long time. How did you tell the story with a new slant? How did you get away from going over old ground? Where, where do you go with it next that is sport as opposed to crime? When we want to cover this story, we will turn to the crime journalist to go, what's the update on this? It's finding the link to make it relevant after you've told the first story. You know, when we're setting up interviews, uh, when somebody suggests an idea, it's like, well, what's the second question? So where's the bit that you go after this? And maybe maybe there are a lot of stories. Maybe there are a lot of stories about fighters who are influenced to to join or to follow a career or who don't get opportunities. Very difficult for sports journalists without the crime background to know how to cover those, I think. Um, and maybe it requires more collaboration between the sports departments and the crime correspondents. Maybe that's the way forward, that it's a multidisciplinary approach. I think tying it all together and and saying, by the way, everybody, you should be aware of this is very important. And, and doing that sporadically, I think, is a completely legitimate kind of refresher. Did you realise that this is happening? Did you know it's still going on? Did you know that these fights are still happening and this company is still active and these are the fighters who are fighting under there? I think that's all a legitimate conversation to have sporadically. I don't know how often you can have that without everybody going, click, I've heard this already, or, you know, turning the page literally and metaphorically from a written perspective. Bob Yalen was the CEO of MTK Global, and he stepped down from the position the day before the company dramatically folded in April. Yalen appeared as a guest on the Ring Magazine's podcast three years ago. The podcast was presented by Kurt Emhoff, who has had a storied career in boxing. His day job is as an attorney in New York, but he's also been part of the sharp end of professional boxing for 25 years. Emhoff's work as a boxing manager has seen him look after 13 different world champions, including Polly Malignaghi, Corey Spinks and Sam Soliman. In that podcast, Emhoff asked Yalen about Kinahan, something that hadn't been done before. MTK really hadn't made a huge splash here in the States. Um, 
And Bob, Bob was a friend of mine. I mean, I, I've known Bob uh, for many years uh, when he used to work at uh, ESPN and I had fighters fighting on ESPN. So I was just researching, doing a podcast on him. And, and I'd seen that he had become, I guess, CEO of, of MTK. So I'm like, wow, you know, maybe I should do, uh, you know, I just as part of the research, I was researching MTK and and I was like, wow, this this way in. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. But, you know, that, again, you know, it wasn't any major fighters. So that it, it really didn't create a big splash in the U.S. But then I started reading, you know, some of, you know, your articles and Evan's articles. And, um, you know, I was just like, wow, this is this, this is a really big deal. You know, this, you know there's, there's there's a lot going on over here, you know, and and this guy, uh, Kinahan sounds really unsavory. You know, so when I so when I interviewed Bob, you know, I mean, Bob's had such a storied career. I really wanted to cover that, but I just felt I'd be completely remiss if I didn't go into MTK and Kinahan and if his if his uh, if he was still involved and and so on. I mean, I you know I, I really just scratched the surface in that interview with Bob, but I did broach some things and I saw, um, you know, some some questions that. Uh, that Mr. McKenna wanted to ask him, uh, he listed them in an article, and I tried to get to those with Bob, but uh, you know I don't know that he gave me great answers to them. But but yeah, it was basically yeah, but but I it really wasn't a story over here because the MTK, you know, I guess the their their reach hadn't hadn't gotten here yet, and people in the know unboxing kind of knew about all this stuff was going on, but the press over here really hadn't covered it at all, so. Um, yeah, I guess I was probably the first one to broach it when I when I interviewed Bob. For much of the 20th century, professional boxing mattered. It really mattered. Everyone knew who the heavyweight champion of the world was. The big fights attracted incredible audiences on TV. That lasted for a long time. When Barry McGuigan beat Eusebio Pedrosa at Loftus Road in 1985 to become WBA World Featherweight Champion, 19 million watched on UK television. It was such a big deal that among the crowd were figures as different as Irish rugby legend Willie John McBride, artist Lucian Freud and soccer superstar George Best. All has changed utterly. Big fights are no longer on terrestrial TV. Instead, they're shown on a host of different platforms, often with pay-per-view charges on top. There's still money to be made, and that influences every decision that's made in the sport. But can money explain away tying yourself to someone like Kinahan? Patrick Connor isn't so sure. It's an indictment of the uh, structure of power in boxing is what it is. Uh, the fighters are ultimately putting up the most risk, period. And often you will hear promoters, when you point that out, say, yeah, but, you know, and it's there's a constant kind of power struggle there that has shifted in recent years with many fighters getting more power than fighters generally used to have. But, um, yeah, it's there's definitely... Uh, an imbalance of power with promoters, managers, advisors, etc., making a lot more money than the fighters by and large, 
So that's kind of like the first problem. But then you have a lot of these fighters who are willing to basically sell their souls. I mean, I, I don't want to put it too harshly, but yeah, I mean, whether metaphorically or whatever, they're they're willing to kind of sell out to go with somebody that is widely recognized as a bad dude. So it's it's very it, it it's a tough proposition because on one hand you want to see fighters taken care of and if I and if a fighter's telling you but this guy's taken care of me it, it that's again it, it it gives you cognitive dissonance cuz you don't really know what to say to that but the fact of the matter is you said it yourself 18 people dead uh on an international scale and it's certainly not to belittle any of these 18 or just a one but Jamal Khashoggi we're talking about still a few years later that's one journalist and it's 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 really sad stuff in episode four of Shadowboxing, it looks as if we've entered the end game for Daniel Kinahan what damage has been done and how will the sport recover Shadowboxing is presented and written by Kieran Cunningham and produced by Kieran Bradley. Thanks to all the contributors and to Chris Heaney for additional music.